Welcome to Business School. I'm Stephen Cool, the co-founder of Burrow. And I am Phineas Ellis, the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a podcast where we discuss relevant and recent topics in consumer startup culture. We are excited about our guest today. We're going to dig into the wide-ranging topic of fundraising. Yeah, so uh, when I graduated from college in 2009, I went to work for a hedge fund called Pramal Group, and the general counsel at the time was Mr. Ken Wen. And we've, we've just stayed very close friends ever since. And then uh, right around 2016, when we were starting Burrow, and it was that summer, I was kind of going back and forth between New York and San Francisco and Mexico City, where our first production facility was. I was having brunch with Ken. We, we caught up and, and you, were, you were starting Republic or had started Republic. And you were telling me about all the kind of challenges that you, you were facing. And it was as we were going through fundraising and trading notes. And it's been amazing to see how far you guys have come. I just saw you had an infographic talking about your, was it the four-year anniversary? <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while. And uh, first of all, thank you so much, guys, for having me. And yeah, super interesting. And looking back, Stephen, and we've obviously known each other for over a decade now, how our respective companies launched and, and fundraised are such different journeys, equally difficult. Uh, and I'm just excited to like, dive in uh, and get some of your perspectives as well. Yeah, uh, to start, what is Republic? And why does it exist? So we're by now one of the largest investment platform uh, on which anyone, you can be a millionaire or a college student, can invest small amount into private companies that we curate. So before that, not long ago, you got to be a millionaire in order to invest privately. And even then, most millionaires don't have any access. So the, the, what we're doing is changing the narrative around private investing and make it truly accessible to the masses. Where did you come up with the idea for this? And give a little bit of background about your time at AngelList beforehand. Uh, AngelList basically does what we do, but only for millionaires. And I think when the law changed under President Obama, the, the world that we're living in is everything's moving toward a share economy. You have Uber changing transportation, uh, Airbnb changing hotel. There's no reason why entrepreneurship uh, is the purview of the Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, and people from Wharton and, uh, you know, from more privileged backgrounds. So we think not only that more people should be investing, I think more entrepreneurs should get funded as well. So I want to zoom out really quickly. On this show, we talk about startup culture. We talk a lot about the pop culturization of startups. But with fundraising, we typically talk about VC, right, venture capital, and those would be institutional investors that have become pop stars in their own right over the last 10 years. And they are raising money from wealthy people or institutions and then investing that money in companies directly. Historically, and I think one of the main engines of what startup culture has become is this is a very small group of people investing a very large amount of money in a very small amount of startups. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about what void Republic fills within that culture of a very small amount of investors and in investing in a very select few entrepreneurs. 
You know, if I may go back and give a very broad overview of kind of like fundraising or venture financing for a startup founder. So if you go back like far enough, 12 years or 13 years, the only way by and large a new tech startup founder can get financing is if he or she, predominantly he, know or knew one of like three dozen or so individuals in Silicon Valley. So obviously if you're born in Palo Alto and went to Stanford, it's a lot easier than if you went to University of Alabama living, you know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, right? So uh, that access to venture capitalists and getting them to pay attention to what you do was one key element in order for you to get funding. Around 20... 11, 2012, uh, the model advanced a little bit because a lot of these individuals, they had the access to deals, so-called credible founders, but not all of them had, you know, $3 million in disposable income. So they couldn't just write out half a million dollar check time and time again. So this platform called AngelList came up with a model that like, hey, you're one of these you know, superstars, very well connected, but you don't have the capital. So you find us the deal and we're going to let millionaires, that is doctors and lawyers, putting together $20,000 at a time and then help finance. So that model is like kind of like crowdfunding, but like for, for the rich. Uh, now, even that model still is available mostly to those who have that initial connection to the small cohort of you know, connectors in Silicon Valley. Uh, and from those people and their backing eventually, by and large, would lead to VC financing. Uh, so uh, Boro and Stephen Cole, uh, they're part of Y Combinator, which is, I think is probably by far the best accelerator in the US. And they're not necessarily the best because they provide you so much education and information and teaching and substance. They're the best because they can connect you into this ecosystem, open many doors, and get you that venture financing. So up until very recently, even now, largely, that's the model of startup financing. And there's a reason why it still just serves predominantly, I think all three of us on the call are very lucky, very privileged people. But we, I'm sure all three of us know that just because you grew up in Alabama in you know, the middle of farmland, it doesn't mean that there's less talent there compared to, say, Palo Alto or Seattle. That's decidedly not the case. So how do you change the narrative around it a little bit so that that guy or that gal from Alabama with a really good idea nonetheless can get some exposure and get that initial funding and some connection so that eventually what he or she's building get the attention of VC, right? So the, the, the name of the game for the, the ecosystem that we're living in is just how to improve access to capital with the belief that if more people get access to capital, you don't know which one will succeed, but net-net, you're going to have more good companies maturing rather than if you're just playing in this small ecosystem of presumed talent. Let's let's dig in that a little bit because you're right. AngelList was, was one of the first ones to do it. And I think beyond their actual platform, uh, it kind of popularized this idea of anybody with money, anybody who is an accredited investor being able to invest in startups. And because that became more of a thing, people started doing that, whether that was through AngelList or just directly from knowing the companies, it became 
more of a common thing. And I also want to point out that, yes, Y Combinator has done a lot. I mean, they were super helpful for us, but there's been other innovations as well in the fundraising space. Traditionally, if you raise money from a VC, you get what's called a lead investor. And the lead investor sets a valuation for your company. They give you an offer in the form of a term sheet that lists out a bunch of terms. Most notably, we're going to invest X number of dollars for Y percentage of your company, which you know translates to a certain valuation. And they're going to take a board seat and it, whatever. There's a whole bunch of other terms involved in there, but in its most simplistic form, that's how it happens. And then once you have a lead investor... Other investors will say, I will also participate in this round. I I agree with the valuation. I like the lead investor. I'm also going to invest. And what Y Combinator did in 2013 was invent uh, what's called the safe note, a simple agreement for future equity, which is a document that says, I'm going to invest in your company and we're not going to set the valuation right now. And we're not going to have a lead investor that does formal diligence and sets the valuation and everything. I'm just going to write you a check and we're going to agree to certain bounds by which my investment will convert into equity in your company at a later date. So sometimes it's a discount to the future valuation. So it says like a 20% discount would be if I'm going to write you $100,000 and if you raise money at any point in the future or sell the company, my $100,000 converts into equity at a 20% discount to the valuation when you raise money or when you sell. There's also caps, which is like capping the valuation and all sorts of stuff. We're not going to get into all that, but the real benefit to the safe note is it avoids this conversation that we had at Burrow when we, when we got out of YC, we met with all these investors and we had a bunch of people that said, Hey, we're really interested in your company, but we're likely going to invest once you have a lead investor. And we're like, great, all we need is a lead investor. But what that really meant was I'm not really willing to do my own diligence and I want to just follow one of these lead investors, which are like the few dozen you know, major VC firms, Ken, that you, that you mentioned. And so what the SAFE did was it allowed us to say, okay, we're not taking money from a lead investor, just write a check if you're interested. And then once a lead investor comes in at some point in the future, that's when you'll convert into equity. And so I think that also created a lot of access for companies to get money from from investors as a, you know in addition to many investors having access to the companies and that's predominantly how the angelist syndicates work is that right uh yes no i want to share a little bit there that if you're a alum or if you're a white combinator startup the probability of you attracting people who are willing to deploy 20 50 100 200,000 on a safe is obviously vastly higher than if you're if you aren't backed or, or you know graduate from Y Combinator. So for startup founders who didn't have that background, that validation, that check mark, you gotta rely on traditionally friends and family. Uh, and very few people have a friends and family network that can deploy half a million, right? Correct. Uh, but, correct. But the model of what you describe is exactly it, which is uh, angel is then relying on companies that have been pre-validated. Y Combinator is an example, or if a deal has been led by Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia, then they would use that validation mark and allow millionaires who are outside of the ecosystem to pool capital and co-invest. No, for sure. For sure. And, and I totally recognize that us going through Y Combinator was 
a huge stamp of approval for a lot of people to then invest. And our access to capital before going through Y Combinator was, like you said, limited to like friends, family, former coworkers, et cetera, who were writing $10,000 checks and whatnot, which are, you know, super helpful early on, but do not get you those multi-million dollar rounds that traditional VC gives you access to. And Stephen, may I also share uh, one thing that Phineas touched on, which is why should things be different and what changes should we expect? I want to share just like two uh, facts. One of which is that I don't know how many people know, but the Boston Consulting Group uh, estimated that by the year 2030, 10 years from now, of the Fortune 500 companies that exist in 2030, about 75% of which have yet to exist today. Just think about that potentiality, this vast range of cooperation that will change how we work and live are now in some people's head or in some garages somewhere. Then a different set of facts, which is 50% of venture capital have gone to companies in California. If you add in Boston and New York, then it's something like 82%. If you 50% of venture capital have gone to basically social uh, apps, the Snapchat, the TikTok of the world, leaving everything else, healthcare, infrastructure, everything else, just half of the pie. So it's very clear that if you just leave it to the traditional venture ecosystem, then indeed Y Combinator, like you, I literally represent the best of the best under that lens and, and are the most able with the most access. But if we are looking at entrepreneurship as having a profound impact on the economy and society in that, in that 70% of Fortune 500 companies example, shouldn't everyone have a little bit more of a say in deciding which companies and which industry and technologies get funded together with the venture capitalists and the connectors in Silicon Valley. So it's not about changing it, it's about supplementing the sources of capital so that the more the percentage of companies that get a chance to become Fortune 500 in a few years and in 10 years represent more than just currently or traditionally those who decided to pick them, which uh, obviously the venture capitalists is still developing. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question about how do we protect against and how do we justify giving $50 million, $100 million to a 28-year-old entrepreneur and saying, grow your company, and then hopefully I get a return in 10 years or five years or eight years. To me, so many of these companies are going to run off the tracks when they're given basically blank checks. How do you reconcile that as an industry of investment? What needs to change in how we determine who gets massive amounts of money and why does it need to be such a big number? Unifitness is a great question. I don't think anyone has asked me that question before, but I want to dispel a common misunderstanding here. Very rarely, if ever, have I heard of a founder who's just been given $100 million or 50 or 20 or even 10. Very few. So usually the process of venture capital is this. You have someone who's going to go out there, pitch and convince people to hand over a small sum of money. You got to build, you got to hustle, and then you deliver on certain metric, and then you raise a little bit more. 
and you repeat, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat that process over many times. And so by the time you get $100 million, you have gone through this like trial and tribulations of hiring a team and maturing as a leader, as a manager, and then you can take on more and more serious obligations in one point becoming public. Now, that of course, there are exceptions to that narratives. And you see cases, I think, whereby it usually uh, make headline news when you have founders who go rogue, right? Raise, I don't know, $50 million and then like grow, throw parties on yachts and go to strip clubs and be all over page six. And uh, usually it's because their growth had happened overnight and they had yet to acquire the maturation, the social and emotional and, and management maturation. But that's a good problem to have. But what I'm suggesting is that for venture capital, which is the earliest stage, you know, most companies like Whole Foods, HP, Dell, started with $50,000 or less. But that is still a sum of money that a lot of people up until now don't have any access to. And so the question is, how can you give a very talented founder with an excellent idea, except that she doesn't have wealthy friends or family, she doesn't have access to Silicon Valley or New York, that initial capital in hope that she will build something out of it. So it's not about handing someone $100 million. It's about, at least in the case of Republic, from the crowd, enable a founder to raise $100,000 to hire a CTO, bail out an MVP, and hopefully, you know, win the attention of VC. But there's, but we got to run a hundred of those in hope that 10 of which would, uh, would, would mature enough to, to raise from VC. And out of 10, maybe two or three would go all the way. So the name of the game for private investing, and you ask uh, about investor protection in, in, in education, the name of the game for private investing is di diversification, right? So you got to make sure that people invest broadly. But when you allow people to invest 10 or $20, it is possible for people to invest in 100 of them and hope that one of them would work out very well and yield a major return. Uh, and in the process, obviously, learning and supporting entrepreneurship and all of that. Uh, but finish out of the 30,000 plus application that we received in the past four years, we launched less than 250 companies. Um, so the curative lens is quite high. Uh, now, I'm not gonna say that the cohort of companies on Republic is always at the quality of Y Combinator. Certainly right now, it is not. We also fundraise for small businesses that are not venture-backable uh, with a different return value proposition. But the psychology of private investing is venture capital and more. It's not just all about finding the next unicorn. It's about supporting businesses that are viable, even if it's a $2 million business in the long run. I'll second that. I think that is the common misconception, too, about people getting too much money too fast. If anything... I would say there's probably too much money flowing into these later stage companies that may not need it, but they're so de-risked at that point from an investment perspective that like investors see a very realistic chance to get a, you know, two to four X outcome or like return multiple on their, on their money. And it doesn't really matter that the company doesn't need that much money. It's just a good investment at that point in time. And like, if you look at Roe, who just made the news today, they have a 28 year old, I think CEO, they just raised $200 million, but 
three years ago, they raised $3 million, which is still a lot of money, but they raised $3 million. And then from then until now, they're now going to do $250 million this year in revenue and are growing super fast and are actually on like the forefront of what it means to provide like telehealth to people. Obviously, they have a number of other products that people are know about, but I think that's the kind of proof point that Ken's talking about. Like it wasn't until they, like any company that can go from zero to 250 million a year in revenue in three years, I think is going to attract a ton of money and has proven that they can grow a huge business. But yeah, there's, it's about providing access to more people than just the ones. It's not saying the people who are currently getting funded by traditional VC, we should change that. No, it's, it's how do we give access to more people to give them a chance? And if they can prove themselves at the early stage by giving them $50,000, $100,000, a million dollars very early on to prove out their companies, we as a society will have a bigger pool of companies to choose from. And then the big VCs will be aware of them and can start investing in more and more companies with founders from much more diverse backgrounds, which is a net benefit to the world. One of the areas in equity crowdfunding is the term tokenization and put on your Professor Ken hat. And if you could speak to me like I'm a five-year-old and tell me what tokenization means, why it exists, and then does it really need to exist? Uh, before that, let me just uh, point out a major problem first. Uh, so I, uh, I was uh, injured as general counsel, and so I hold a bunch of shares, right? So assuming that, say, you want to buy 100 shares of AngelList at $10 a share, which is a lot, but if you want to buy 1,000 of them, so that's $10,000 in transaction, that's a relatively meaningful amount. I can't really get that done. You know why? Because first of all, I got to send our request to AngelList CFO. They got to reach out and do due diligence on you, Finis, to make sure that you're an accredited investor and that you're you know, past KYC and AML. Then there got to be an agreement. What, are, what does that mean? Know your customer, anti-money laundering, meaning that you're not affiliated to Kim Jong-un or you know, Osama bin Laden's cousin or whatever it may be. So all of these you know, regulatory uh, requirements for a private transaction. And then after that, they got to make sure that you have wired me or send me an ACH uh, you know, payment, confirm that then through, through DocuSign or wet signature, that's a lot of work that even $10,000 is deemed not worthwhile for the company, AngelList, to really facilitate. So that applies across the board, all different kinds, whether it's real estate, whether it's late stage company, that's why by and large, the minimum amount that anyone can participate in these asset classes is so high, right? $20,000, $50,000. So blockchain and tokenization term that blockchain technology enables, there are really only two things that I think anyone needs to know. One is that it enables you to break down any asset, whether a phone or a share, to tiny pieces. A single angelist share can be broken down to a million pieces and tracked. And the second one is that it automates the entire process of KYC AML accreditation, meaning one is fully tokenized and, I, and we initiate that transaction. Interless CFO doesn't have to do anything, whether you KYC AML is already validated on chain. And more importantly, the transaction can be $10. So if you imagine for a $10,000 transaction, the wire bank fee is about $30, meaningful. ACH fee is about three bucks. 
But if you were to buy $10 worth of share, that makes it economically nonsensical, right? It just doesn't make sense to pay that high of a fee. Once tokenized and you automate the payment scheme, all of a sudden, a single mom from Ecuador, some dude in Hanoi, Vietnam, can buy a, a fraction of a borough share on the private market, $2 worth of it, and pay a cent of transaction fee. So if you imagine that any asset class can be broken down and that all of a sudden you unlock the $100 bills that people stash under their bed in developing countries, and now you funnel that into the global market, imagine just the new wave of finance that you're going to see. And I think this is just my personal speculation. One of the reasons why the public stock market through the pandemic uh, has been performing against all traditional expectations may very well be that this is the first time ever that you see this wave of retail investor through Robinhood and otherwise participating in hedging betting. So you have a lot more capital influx among other reasons, but we, I really think that this is going to be the decade whereby you see retail capital around the world investing privately as well as publicly. And I think that really changed the financial market and the economy as we know it. So if I buy tokens in a company, what do I get? What do I own? Do I own shares in the company? Do I own a right to something else? Think of token as a legal contract in a way, meaning it really depends on what that contract say. So there's no token that that's the same. So in the same way that am I buying a save? Well, it depends on what terms and whether it's revenue sharing or profit sharing. Republic just issued the very first digital token of its kind in the world, as far as I know. It's a profit sharing token, meaning periodically we pay out profits that we earn back to token holders uh, and it's accessible to both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, but that framework is one of many. Imagine one, uh, you know, next year you're going to have uh, Iron Man or Spider-Man, the franchise, the movie franchise. The next movie, the production cost partially should be tokenized so that if a college student in India acquires $20 worth of tokens, she can benefit when the movie, you know, yields 5x return and she can sell and trade it with her cousins using her phone. So I think that kind of, of, of ownership future uh, is the digital economy that I think we will see. And then how does that get regulated? If everybody has access to it, how do you regulate it so that the right projects are getting funded by people who know what they're doing? Or said another way, how do you protect people from losing their own money on things like this, which I think is so stupid because people can just gamble with their own money. <laughs> so, like there's not really limits on that. So why should there be limits on investing in, in companies? But nevertheless, I know this needs to be regulated from a government perspective. So, so how does that happen? Uh, a great question. And it's, when it comes to private investing, I, yeah, like how do you navigate risk is the, the number one question that I think everyone should ask. Uh, and the answer is threefold. One of which is that the law already provides a very complex framework that is U.S. securities law. What I just described to you guys in terms of like tokenized assets, much of it squarely fits under the definition of securities and therefore regulated by securities law in each country. Right, So we have 80 years since the Great Depression uh, and the whole framework of our investor protection that people have to comply. Uh, the second piece of it, there's no better way than literally just 
educate people on like, hey, diversify, prepare to lose your money, etc. And thirdly, but I think it's equally important, when you enable people to invest small amount, that is $5, $10, I don't know how many people realize that every single year Americans lose $100 billion in the casinos in Vegas and spend another $80 billion buying lottery tickets, almost all of whom are non-accredited investors. And no one is asking, hey, Ken, you just spent $5 buying a latte at Starbucks. What if it doesn't meet your expectation? What if it's like, tastes bad? Is it fraud? Well, no. It's about having the expectation and the assumption of risk and knowing what you can and cannot do. But at the end of the day, I think you've got to give people access, the ability to participate to have ownership in things they believe in and like it's a delicate balance between the three to make sure that you know people understand and adopt new things yeah you're creating a retail marketplace of companies for people to shop and the value of that product that they're buying is a helping support a company that they think is needs support and they want to be a part of participation b potential long-term return, but we liken that more to gambling than we do to buying a product that serves a purpose in your daily life. So that's really interesting to me. You're creating basically a retail marketplace of companies that turns shopping into investing in some way. But you do, it sounds like you are realistic about the expectations around meaningful return. And I think that's really important as you're marketing to the world, essentially, right? When you open, you totally blow open the gates for people to be able to invest. I think the marketing around the product or the productization of investing becomes the most important thing because that is probably the biggest safeguard against mismanagement and against taking advantage of people that are not aware of what they're participating in. Yeah, 100%. And most people still don't know what investing means, right? So if you ask a random person, is it debt? Is it fixed income? What am I getting? So the process of educating people on what it means to be an investor is in and by itself a challenge for what is a very new industry. You know, we have the only crowd invest reality TV show in the world. So Shark Tank style, people at home can watch Tim Draper and his family judging like, you know, like the sharks. But at home, you can invest using a credit card while watching it on Sony Entertainment cable television. Uh, so kind of like think, you know, the voice, but entrepreneurship and at home you can engage. Obviously, investing on a credit card, watching TV, are you kidding me? On the other hand, you know, I mean, people, how many hundreds of billions of dollars do people watch TV and buy, right? So uh, it's just another form of another spending behavior that I happen to think is more enriching and beneficial and cynical in terms of feeding back into the, the ecosystem than, uh, you know, buying a cup of coffee as an example. Ken, you run a startup. Startups move incredibly fast. You are, and you have been, navigating uncharted territories when it comes to U.S. securities law and pushing forward some of these products. Tell us what that's like or what that's been like in working with the government, which is notoriously slow. How did you get some of these products launched? 
Another misconception among founders in tech and particularly fintech founders is that regulators are bad, you know, just archaic, they don't understand technology. Us in Silicon Valley innovate and move things along and we ignore them. Uh, and that's a really bad, you know, misconception for anyone operating in fintech, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, I very much firmly uh, believe in the value of uh, public capital and the U.S. government in the past century in driving innovations and technology from the internet and, and other things. And secondly, regulators are normal, smart people who want good things to happen. They just have a different view of the world. And so the process of engaging and the patience it takes understanding that yes you have to put on a suit and a tie and yes you go to dc and you got to wait for three or four or five hours for certain meetings so that patience knowing that that it's just a process you have to go through in order to get your perspectives uh through you know my legal background ended up being very helpful building a company in fintech um, but at the end of the day, uh, it just takes a lot of patience. And uh, I think that's a trait that as a founder, it's a good trait to have if you want to be happy and enjoy the process of building a company you know, while hustling mentally, you just got to be patient uh, with things. So would you say that regulators were almost like working with you as partners to help get some of these offerings and services off the ground? If you look at Republic's track record, 50% of the capital that we that, that from, from the crowd that we fund have gone to underserved founders, black, brown, female founders and veterans. Um, we do generate a lot of goodwill, uh, even with governmental agencies. And I think that definitely has gone a long way. Uh, but yeah, for sure, uh, they've been very rational, open, supportive. And I gotta say, uh, under the Trump administration, uh, the policies that are pro-small businesses, uh, undoubtedly that have been uh, one of the things that uh, as a company we actually are grateful for. Uh, I'm not going to comment on social policies, but on, uh, on business policies, that's a perk of a Republican administration. Now, you mentioned that a lot of your founders are, are very diverse. Is that because access to funding is typically restricted for people of this background or from these diverse backgrounds or are you specifically seeking out more diverse people oh that's a great question uh and people are usually surprised when we say that more than 50 percent of companies raising capital through republic have diverse founders we actually don't have any quota we don't fix a percentage oddly enough you know when people make investment decisions behind a computer screen, naturally, their decisions just, uh, I guess, some unconscious biases are more reduced or more eliminated. I think very few people are overtly, you know, racist or discriminatory, but we all have like our tendency to assess credibility based on people of a certain similar background, right? So uh, if you have venture capitalists whom at one point uh, drop out of say Stanford or Berkeley, build a company, exit, have a lot of capital, and now become a venture capitalist. Then of course, when you sit across from someone from a similar background, you're gonna be like, oh, and did you go to have lunch at that whatever building? And like the dynamic and the credibility naturally will, will be somewhat biased based on familiarity. So I do think that there's something known as the wisdom of the crowd. And I do think that retail capital, by definition, 
will lend itself to a more inclusive environment. But we have the intention of access and inclusion, but we've never, you know, adopted or a percentage or a quota of any type. What's your sales pitch for this for for founders? Like, why should founders raise on Republic versus through traditional VC? Assuming access isn't a question, like, assume you have access to both. Yeah, I uh, and and it is complementary, not mutually exclusive. VC capital versus crowd investing. My answer is this: say there's no difference between taking a Lyft uh, or, or taking an, an Uber, right? By and large, more or less the same. Similarly, there's no difference between Sky Vodka and Absolute Vodka. If you're a $100 investor, literally just $100 in Sky Vodka, what are you going to order when you go out to a bar for Hanukkah or Christmas or New Year? Similarly, if you're a $100 investor or that you have $100 worth of shares in, in Lyft, would you not call for a Lyft ride every single time? And if you're a driver, would you not consistently drive for that one brand? So that allegiance, the, the sense of ownership that drives engagement and drive people to be an ambassador is so unique when you give that person a little bit of skin in the game. So pretty much any company, doesn't matter at what stage, pre-IPO, that if you're consumer-facing, I think there's a strong value in giving your customer skin in the game in the company and all of a sudden you turn them into brand ambassadors. So that value of community engagement uh, and marketing is truly unique and I think it's universally applicable. Yeah, having that many brand ambassadors, it's almost like instead of just having your employees that are tied to the outcome of your business it's like all of your customers are then now also tied to the success this is going to make the exact opposite point but i had a good friend in business school who had invested a bunch in groupon and oh my god he used to try to get us to buy everything from groupon (laughs) to turn the stock around (laughs) he would buy cases of wine for parties (laughs) a hundred percent you know like the the tokenized example that i uh, share earlier If a college student in India purchased $20 worth of the next Spider-Man movie uh, in production cost, man, you bet it when that movie comes out, she would like rally the entire college to like go see the damn movie, right? And and out of that is a coolness factor to say that I'm an investor in that movie. doesn't matter that it's a $5 investment. Uh, So yeah, uh, I think that that really is the uh, level of engagement that people will see uh, in, in the years to come. One of the things that we've touched on in this show a bunch is the relationship between investors and founders and the expectation around their investment return. And one thing we see in the consumer landscape quite often is you invest heavily in a company, you know, venture dollars, and then the expectation is that you'll get a return within five to 15 years, whatever it is. I think the typical mark is around eight years. Is that right, Stephen, for consumer? Yeah. If you invest at the early stage, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that and the problematic nature of a relationship between impatient money and how long it actually takes to run a business or to scale a business to the point where it could get acquired or go public. Certainly going public would take much longer, I would think, than potentially getting acquired for original IP or whatever it is. And then if you could frame that within how that how that's different with Republic or crowdfunded investment dollars. You know, if I may pun the first part of the question to Stephen, given that 
Sequero is backed by you know, some of the very best VCs out there, NEA's, uh, you know, industry giant. Uh, I'm curious on how Stephen answers that question. If I were one of his early investors and asking about how he thinks that I, as an investor, should view my exit potential for a company that is among the very best of the venture-backed cohort. Uh, well, thank you for painting us in such a positive light. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's it's a hard question to answer that I do have to answer on a literally weekly basis because we haven't we have a lot of investors at Borough. We've taken a lot of investments from all accredited investors, but in the range of five thousand dollar checks all the way up to ten million dollars. And so with way more of them being on the lower end of that. And so we have a lot of people that always want to catch up and see how things are going. And, and then when we are fundraising, we do have to answer that question as well. And the, the answer is, it's kind of like a long-winded way of saying, I, I, I don't know, and, and making sure the investors are, are okay with that. Now, we do have to lay out the potential possibilities. So we map out, okay, based on our growth rate and in the furniture industry that we're in, you know, at what size do acquisitions typically take place and it tends to kind of be in like the 50 to 200 million dollar range and then depending on whatever your growth rate is at the time and how profitable you are at the time that all changes the profile of how much you can get acquired for and then for us in the furniture space like if we get somewhere between if we if if we're doing more than 150 million a year in revenue which we are not doing yet but by the time we get there, we have to make a really, a really important decision of, are we looking for somebody to acquire us and to, to kind of merge with another company that's really big? Or do we go public? Because at some point, if you do take venture capital, you take outside capital, you do have, it to some, at some point, you have to give a return. And there are other forms of financing that exist out there that allow you to do some sort of profit sharing. Um, so you, we could say, we want to stay private for a really long time and we'll just give you a percentage of the profits, you know, proportionally based on uh, the ownership of the company from who's invested in it. And that option isn't really available if you take on traditional venture capital. So at some point we have to either sell or go public. And so it's just about navigating that and being really honest and forthright with our investors about what are the realistic outcomes there. And then you're kind of weighing this, you know, decision of, you know, what are the probabilities of, of doing either of them successfully? And like, what is the size of the potential outcomes along the way, et cetera? It, it's, it's complicated. It's, 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 a hard, it's a hard question to answer. We are fortunate that our investors are patient, although we started the company, we launched it in, in April 2017. So it's only been about three and a half years. So we're still pretty young. And so if we have an exit sometime in the next seven years, I would say like, people would be very happy with that. And I think that's realistic. But I also know that like, as amazing of a company as like Warby Parker is, I know that they have many investors who are starting to get a little bit antsy, like, hey, you guys going to go public? You guys going to sell? Like, what's what's going on? Like, we need to get a return on our money. We've invested a lot of money in this business. And until you sell or go public, there's no return. And I think, I think that answer hits it uh, on uh, the nail uh, and, and uh basically repeats a key message that private investing is illiquid, 
long term so that unless you're patient uh, and can just sit on that money or like not 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 look at that money as a you know as an income that uh, a money that you need to use for your you know to fund your life style then uh, then it's not for you and uh, the only thing that I would add to what Stephen has said is the possibility of a secondary liquidity uh, solution that is you know if for a certain company at a certain size that there are people who want to get in and you know it happened to Stephen and Burrow uh, aren't in fundraising a new round and if and if they are they may not let those guys in and they come back and find early investors and seek to buy them out so there are a lot of new uh, changes and evolutions when it comes to secondary they call it the secondary market uh, solutions in the secondary market for private investors does republic or other crowdfunding platforms or tokenization make it easier to create secondary markets for you to get liquidity if you're a small investor yeah, so tokenization functionally, structurally does make it feasible. Now, you can't have a secondary market unless there's true demand, right? So if you're a brand new company that you just fundraise, what demand out there for people to buy back primary investors? So just because it's possible, it doesn't mean that there is a secondary solution. But indeed, tokenization, the whole point of that is to make that process the example that I gave about me selling uh, Stephen Angelis shares to make that process feasible. With this sort of retail investing model, do the same pressures exist to exit sooner? And I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context here. The reason why VCs and investors traditionally want um, returns faster than just waiting for the company to naturally find its exit point is that they raise funds. So let's say a, a VC firm raises a $500 million fund. They will deploy that over the course of roughly three to five years. And when they are mostly deployed with that, so within two to three years, they'll start raising their next fund. Now, they will likely have not had any exits or maybe only one exit in that short period of time. And so then they raise their next fund. And then two and a half-ish years later, they raise their third fund. And at some point, their investors who invested in their first fund and their second fund, and then now the VC is like, hey, we're raising our third fund. They're like, hey, you haven't returned us any money from the first fund. Like, are any of these companies ever going to get an exit? And so then they feel that pressure. And then that pressure gets put down onto the companies to find an exit for them so they can return capital to their investors. There are situations called permanent capital, whereby people have a a set pool of capital that they don't have a fund structure. And so they don't have those time pressures. Where does retail capital, where does Republic fall in, into that kind of like overall structure? Yeah. So a lot of the companies that have come to Republic to raise uh, have already received venture financing. And so they use it as customer engagement. So they are not receiving that pressure from the retail customer base. Again, because, you know, it's, you have a, say, McKinsey associate or junior partner investing $100. It's like buying a shirt because you had a really stressful week. So they follow it. They get interested. But it's not like the emailing the founders, like, why aren't you selling your company, right? Uh, so that, that pressure from retail investor uh, isn't really there. That's that for Republic itself, you know, tokenization is a way in which uh, you can fundraise without diluting your um, cap table ownership uh, out of, you know, the 25 plus million dollars that we have raised. Uh, less than a third have been 
dilutive venture capital and the rest of it have been on uh, a token model, a profit sharing token model. Could you give a shout out to one of your favorite companies that's on Republic right now and direct all of our listeners to check it out? What's the best way for us to interact with Republic? Uh, I have zero experience in investing online. And can you give a shout out to a specific company and tell me how best, tell me and our listeners how best to interact with Republic? Um, I would li- I'd love to give a shout out to a company that just completed a race because by SEC regulations, I can't really endorse any active deals right now. Uh, but the company's uh, name is Fleeting, F-L-E-E-T-I-N-G. It's the very first black male uh, founder who raised over a million dollars on any crowdfunding platform. Uh, and he's just phenomenal. Um, and uh, they closed uh, that round about two weeks ago. Uh, it's a trucking service. The business is... You know, chess is not like fancy AI, but it's a business model that clearly has been and will be adding tons of jobs and value to the economy. Uh, but we very much believe that wealth, equity, uh, and access in, in terms of uh, capital needs uh, is a solution to the many social uh, issues that I think all of us are seeing and experiencing in different ways nowadays. Uh, but Republic.co, and uh, at the end of the day, I... I think people should look at Republic as like fun vesting, meaning if you're sick of gender inequality, then I don't know, find a powerful female founders you really like and want to support. Uh, and if you really believe in a technology, then, then uh, you know, find whatever that technology may be uh, and put in $10, $20, uh, you know, basically a pitcher of beer's worth of, of, uh, of money. And who knows, in eight years, 10 years, it may be a hundred times the, the value. And if not, I'm sure, Part of the process is about learning and, and uh, being part of the story. So I hope everyone will check it out. And on that note, guys, uh, I am so late to uh, another meeting right after this. Class dismissed. Professor Stephen Cole. Let's do the post game. I thought it was really interesting. I thought most of it was digestible for people that don't have a background in this, but there was also an ample amount or a, an appropriate amount of you two going back and forth sort of on the more inside baseball elements of fundraising. Good. Yeah, I know some of it is a little bit dense at times, obviously, and we're not even like scratching the surface of what these things mean because that would be like too dense, but hopefully it paints a little bit of a picture. I like that he, I mean, Ken, like many of the people we've had on the show so far, is a very optimistic person. Um, I think you kind of have to be to be an entrepreneur, but I liked his take on working with regulators and how they are people and they do want to see change, especially for the greater good. Um, And so it's not just, Hey, we're Silicon Valley and we're smarter than everyone else and everyone else should just play catch up to us. It's no, like this is beneficial for the entire economy. So let's, let's all work on this together and figure out something that that works for everybody. What I really liked was just his perspective on how to look at this type of investing. He used the term fun vesting. He likened it to gambling a little bit, but obviously qualified it as different in in a lot of ways. I really liked just the fact that he wasn't trying to tell us that this is something that is traditional investing. He broke down the fact that, you know, at the very end he said, in the future, people will be using this as often as email 
but they don't need to know how blockchain exists, right? I think we're at a stage of this type of investing where it's built on something that's very complex, blockchain and tokenization. But as this becomes more mainstream, it will be a, just a different way to invest in businesses, but it won't be seen as traditional I make an investment and then I expect a return in X amount of time. Those parameters are going to start to trickle away and it'll be a little bit more like buying a product. And you know, you get as much value out of it and, and there's risk involved, but it's re- it's the retailization of investing. And I thought his perspective on that was very realistic and refreshing. It's also it just removes so much friction from the process. That's the benefit of blockchain. I do think there needs to be a large amount of growth in terms of trusting blockchain. Um, there have been a lot of issues in the past with it. People questioning the like how safe it is and, and how reliable it is. All of which is solvable, just takes time. And there are plenty of very, very, very intelligent people working on this. But but I agree with you, like this, this is gonna be how everybody raises money. And really what he's talking about is this is broadening the entry-level playing field. It's, it's making it accessible for founders from every walk of life to get enough capital to start proving out their business model in order to attract the real big players in the, in, in the VC community to say, oh, you've already proven it out. And, and there's just too many people that aren't given that access yet. And then on the company side, there's this added benefit. He's absolutely right of building brand ambassadorship through investment and getting people like all of our investors I know have borough products in their homes and they talk about it. And that would be incredibly valuable if they all, if they all talked about it. It's kind of like the crowdfunding platforms like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. That's why they were so powerful is because I mean, you're buying a product, so it's not like you're investing for equity by any means, but you gave them the money to start making their initial batches of products. And then as soon as you got them, you told all your friends about them and that's how it really took off. And this is doing that for equity. And I think that's gonna be really powerful too going forward. are wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.